Welcome back to Malleable Minds. If you're tuning back in from the first podcast I did in November, then thank you for listening again. And if this is your first time, then then yeah, welcome. So I've set myself a challenge this year to try and get 12 podcasts done um, across the year. So that's about one per month. It doesn't have to be each month. I've, I've said that to myself, but the equivalent of 12. Um, I want to try and do it in perhaps different topics, maybe not just in psychology, which is what I'm studying, um, and maybe try and have some guests on as well, which would be kind of cool. I've spoken to a couple of people, and some people have said that they're interested, um, but we'll see what happens. Um, So this episode is going to be about attitudes and prejudice. So it kind of sparked into my mind because um, New Year's just has gone past, and people set a lot of New Year's resolutions and things that they, they want to get done. Um, and so that kind of started my uh, thinking again back into attitudes and some of the things that I'd learned about it. And I'm also interested in the topic of, of prejudice. And I think that there are some ways that they, well, there are definitely some ways that um, relate between those two topics. So I'll start off by talking what are attitudes and broadly it's kind of, um, you've got the concept, uh, so the thing of that you're talking about. So let's take in the New Year's resolution kind of example. Let's take fitness. Fitness is the concept. Uh, people set their New Year's resolution as, you know, I want to get fitter, I want to achieve some kind of exercise goal, whether it be um, cardio-based or, you know, strength training or whatever, whatever you want to call it. So fitness would be the concept. And then there's the evaluation of it. So do you feel positively about fitness? Do you feel negatively? Do you think, um, is it just boring to you? Yeah, so that will be the evaluation of it. When people usually use the the term attitudes or a couple of ways that people use the term attitudes is, you know, you hear um, parents saying to the kids, oh, don't don't give me that attitude. Or you hear teachers say, oh, wow, this, this student's got a really good attitude. So in the first sense, with parents talking to their kids going, don't give me that attitude, this is kind of um, the first component that was sort of thought of as what an attitude is, um, which is what's known as affect, uh, which means the feelings and the emotions of, of an attitude. Then we have the thinking um, which can be more accurately defined as cognition. So the cognitive component, so thinking, beliefs. Um, cognition also includes memory, perception, judgment, and attention, for example. There might be a couple more, but um, that's that kind of summarizes cognition pretty well. And then the final component, which is probably the most interesting in terms of attitudes, which is behavior. So we have affect, feelings and emotions, thinking and beliefs, and then we have behavior, which are our actions. So this is known in psychology as a tri-component model of attitudes, or the ABC model, affect, um, cognition and behavior, or not in that order, obviously. Um, and it's kind of interesting when we relate it to, to that fitness, that fitness goal, the New Year's resolution. Um, We set this goal for ourselves, so our thinking is that, yes, we want to be fitter, um, we want to achieve this goal, our feelings are quite strong in terms of, yes, I can do this, I'm confident, it's a new year, new me, 
and everyone says that, new year, new me, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Um, and their behaviour is often quite consistent, at least for for the first week, two weeks, month, three months, if you make it that long. Some people, or a lot of people don't, and that's why we hear it every new year, gyms get flooded with with new people for the new year, new me movement. And the interesting part, which kind of relates to, if you listen to my first podcast, which was on um, our self-concept, it's kind of interesting because just like with our self-concept, how we like to, to be consistent, we like our attitudes to be consistent as well. And we like between those three components of our attitude, we like those to be consistent also. And it becomes interesting when there is some inconsistency between them. So, for example, what would happen or what often happens with the New Year's resolutions is people have those goals and then people eventually fall off. Their behaviour or something changes. This is known as cognitive dissonance. There's kind of an interesting story about how this this term um, kind of originated and this was from, or at least partly from, um, a psychologist named Leon Festinger, who I think it was in the 50s. Yeah, it was around the late 50s. So there was a kind of a cult, a doomsday cult, who um, thought, the, as doomsday cults do, thought the world was ending, well, believed, knew the world was ending. Um, so this is that thinking component. Their feelings were very, very strongly about this. And their behavior was that a lot of these people quit their jobs and, you know, gathered all their supplies and things that they needed for, for how they thought the world was going to end. So then what kind of happened is Leon Festinger was watching this group of people um, and basically observing them and waiting until the day that we now know the world didn't end and was kind of looking for what was going to happen in their attitudes or how were they going to change and adapt to the fact that the world didn't end. So this, this um, element of the world not ending is actually the dissonance between their attitudes. So what he found was that the really hardcore members um, who were totally devoted to the cause and... and um, and really, really believed in, in this doomsday uh, event, he actually found that when uh, the world didn't end, that these people actually doubled down on their attitudes and, and believed that it was because of their faithfulness that they were the ones that saved the world. And so he was quite interested in this, and he decided to come up with kind of a task to test this dissonance a little bit further um, and he did this, Festinger and Carl Smith, um, obviously a colleague, in 1959. Um, they did a task called, or, or a, a study, called The Boring Task. Um, and basically what this was, was there were, there were two groups. Um, the task was made to be incredibly boring. They come in, um, they randomly assigned the uh, participants, as you have to do with any good study. And they had these participants doing really, really incredibly boring tasks. So, for example, twisting pegs or um, twisting pegs is the one I believe it was. But yeah, you can you can you can kind of get a, an idea. I think boring task kind of sums it up. Anyway, they're doing this for an, a period of time that 
is enough to to bore anybody. So 10 minutes wouldn't be enough. I think it was around 45 minutes. Um, and then afterwards, one group of participants, they were paid $1 for doing the task and the other group were paid $20 for completing the task. But as part of their pay or as, as part of the study, they were also asked at what the participants thought were the end of the study, they were asked to go and tell somebody who was in the waiting room, um, who was actually a confederate of the, um, of, the, of the test, who they were asked to go and tell this person how good of a study it was, how fun it was to try and get them pumped for it. Those who obliged and, and did this with the um, person waiting, they then took the results of those people um, after having done that and they asked some questions uh, such as, how much did you enjoy the task? And so if you were to have a, have a guess between the $1 group um, and the group that got paid $20, who would you say um, would report enjoying the task more? The $1 group or the $20 group? So when I first heard about this study, I, I was um, inclined to think the $20 group because they got paid more. But coming back to our dissonance kind of, our cognitive dissonance concept, um, and in particular the fact that we like our self-concept to be, to be um, consistent and, and, our, and our attitudes to be consistent, what happened was that the group who were paid $1 um, couldn't justify their um, couldn't justify their lying to to the participant when they um, when they were telling the person who was in the waiting room that it was a really enjoyable task. Upon going and evaluating how much they enjoyed the task themselves, they couldn't justify having lied to that person, and so their behaviour of telling somebody else that it was a fun task caused them to go oh okay, internally, okay, I don't know how to sit this. And they actually end up rating the task as being more enjoyable um, because they have behaved in that way. They have told somebody else that it was enjoyable. So they then are thinking, okay, well, if I said that it was enjoyable, then I must believe that it's enjoyable. And then that is the reason, yeah, then, then that is what was displayed in, um, in their evaluation of doing the task. So I think it's kind of interesting because coming back to our um, New Year's resolutions, the same thing could kind of be said for those who fall off of um, their fitness goals in that they have the goal, their beliefs, their feelings are there, and then let's say they have a weekend where they catch up with mates and they have drinks or whatever. They might reevaluate their goal because their behaviour wasn't as stringent to, to what they'd set out for themselves as, as what they'd hoped for in the beginning. Meaning that they, they'd set themselves this goal, yep, six months' time, I'm going to be at this level, um, I'm going to quit, quit drinking, I'm not drinking, I'm not eating any junk food or anything along those lines. And then if slash when they, they indulge in this, um, they're forced to reevaluate their, their attitude and perhaps suppress 
their goal, their thinking and their belief, uh, their emotions, how confident they, they feel within themselves, um, which ends up in them not completing those goals. So for me, I think it's kind of interesting because it, it forces me to, when having knowledge of, of this concept, it forces me to kind of pay attention to perhaps when I'm not following through on my goals. Um, and I thought it could be interesting for, for others who, wanna, who um, could think about that as well. So in relation to attitudes and prejudice, it's, it's quite interesting because we have, everybody's heard of stereotypes. So stereotypes are, they're generalizations about um, a group of individuals based on just how we categorize them. But importantly, stereotypes can be positive or they could be negative. So an example of a positive stereotype, just kind of an easy one that just sort of popped into my head was, um, that people with glasses are smarter. So it's a positive, it's a positive thing. People would like to be smart, at least I assume. Um, and so, yeah, that's a positive stereotype. Then we have prejudice, which is a negative form of that stereotype, um, a negative stereotype, basically, um, which is a prejudgment about a group and its members. Um, and so it's a combination of uh, kind of these components of an attitude as well. In particular, though, it is the cognitive component and the feelings as well. Then what we have is discrimination. And so this is kind of includes that behavioral component. So there's the feelings, um, the thoughts and the feelings, and then there's the behavior of the actually discriminating um, against um, whoever it be. There's an interesting, uh, there's an interesting study um, that, has, that was done in the Netherlands um, related to a, a philosophy problem known as the trolley or I know it as the train problem. So the trolley or train problem. I heard about this from a neuroscientist that I was watching on YouTube. His name's Robert Sapolsky. Definitely go check him out if, um, if you haven't heard of him. He's, he's fantastic. He's quite interesting in the way that he speaks as well, so uh, definitely worth a watch. But what he was talking about, which I found incredibly interesting, um, and like I said, relates to discrimination, is in this um, trolley problem, I'm going to talk about it as a train problem because that's how I've heard of it and it's, it's easier. But basically how it works is that it's a hypothetical scenario um, where let's say there's a train following along a track and if it continues in its course, um, we can see that up ahead, or in this example, up ahead, there are five workers that are, that are on the train line. Um, so these, these workers can't, they're unaware of the train. They've got no idea that it's coming. They can't hear it for whatever reason. So let's say you're an individual watching this train and you can see that if it follows on its course, it, it's going to hit and kill these five people. So the only option that you have is you can see a lever right near you um, and you're able to pull this lever and what that will do is it will change the course of where the train goes. So let's say it veers off to the left onto another, onto another track. However, on this other track, there is one person that's crossing who is also unaware of 
the train. Um, so this creates this, this problem which in philosophy I believe is called utilitarianism, um, where the greatest good for the greatest number of sentient beings, I guess, um, in this case it's humans, um, the greatest good for the greatest number of, of people um, is, is the right course of action. So in this example, pulling the lever and sacrificing the one for the five could, could be said to be um, the, the greatest moral judgment, I guess. But relating to discrimination, kind of linking it back in, is this, um, there was this study that was done and it relates to a hormone, and I'm not sure if it's a neurotransmitter, but it's a hormone called oxytocin. So oxytocin is quite interesting. Um, it, it's kind of related to empathy and altruism. Um, it's secreted by mothers um, and, and infants when uh, in childbirth, and it's also secreted after sex and after, yeah, so after mating in animals and in humans as well. And so what's kind of interesting is when we first, or at least when I first heard about oxytocin and what it does, I thought that, oh, if we just increase our oxytocin levels somehow, then we can be more empathetic to other people. But what actually happens is oxytocin is more selective than that. So I'm not going to talk exactly about the details, um, the exact same details as what occurred in the Netherlands study that uh, Robert Sapolsky speaks of. Um, instead, I'm going to talk about it in a way that's uh, I've got it in my head. Um, so basically, is that there are there are two groups randomly allocated, um, and one group is given oxytocin and one is given a placebo, which you have to do whenever you're testing something, um, especially uh, with chemicals or, or medicines or whatever you want to call it. So there are these two groups that are given the same train problem. Um, and there are no names for any of the um, hypothetical people in that scenario. Then what happens is in the placebo group, they're given um, they're given names for for the individual that they would be pulling the lever and and essentially killing. So this name could be a familiar name um, of something like Matthew or Jessica. Um, and then they test who pulls the lever or who would pull the lever against between those names and other unfamiliar names, um, things such as Muhammad or Yoku or, or something that's, that's foreign. Um, and so then uh, they take those measurements and they actually found that it was still relatively the same. So pulling the lever was still the same for Matthew and Jessica or Muhammad or, or Yoku. So the difference came is in the real group or the non-placebo group, so the group that got oxytocin, what um, they found was that they were more selective for the familiar names, um, the Matthew and the, and the Jessica, than what they were for Muhammad or Yoku. This meant that they were less likely to pull the lever for, for Matt and Jess and more likely for the others. And the reason why this, this was, or the reason why this is, is because of 
those foreign names are seen as outgroups, so the them compared to the us. This relates to the self-categorization topic that I, that I spoke of in my first podcast. When I first heard this, it was a little bit depressing. It's like, oh, okay, like I don't like to think that, you know, human beings are racist. So I don't want to think that I'm racist, but, you know, maybe it's that there is some kind of underlying prejudice that, that exists. But what is even more interesting is that if all this, for example, if all these people are in front of you at a sporting match, Matt and Jess are wearing those horrible colours of that team who beat yours in the grand final last year, but Muhammad and Yoku uh, are kitted out in the same scarf gloves and, and top as you are. You actually, if, if one of them were to drop their wallet, if Matt and Jess drop their wallet, you're actually less likely... To, to assist them in picking their wallet up and giving back to them as you are for Muhammad or Yoku. So this kind of oxytocin selectivity that, that occurs, this in-group versus out-group, um, is quite flexible. So I thought that was really, really interesting. It kind of um, re-energised me and, and filled me with hope that, you know, um, it's not all bad kind of thing. So I thought that was really, really interesting and, and I hope you did too.